Hi, this is Paul. I'm going to pick up a, on a little bit more of this Jordan Peterson, uh, Constantine Kissin conversation. Part of why I like this conversation is because Constantine brings out a lot of pretty common, uh, how can I say it, um, stylish current thoughts about religion and spirituality that you can find in the secular space today. He's, uh, you know, he's not, oh gosh, how, how, how do you frame this? Fad is a little too dismissive. There are certainly styles, fashions about religion and spirituality that inhabit different cultural spaces. And you've got that on a spectrum of people who have read more, read less, talked more, talked less, given what he's done. I mean, he's obviously an intelligent guy. He's obviously spoken with a lot of different people. Um, he's obviously had some engagement with religion, obviously with his background in um, the post communist world, um, now that he's living in the UK, all of these things are going to have impacts on someone's spiritual interest. And, and this is very much the kind of audience that Jordan Peterson is engaging. Now there's, I, I think, a lot of this, oh, how can we, what language can we use? A lot of this spiritual influence is conveyed by let's say, popular Western Anglo media, which obviously is not only pervasive in places like the United States and the UK, also the Netherlands and Germany, um, Canada, Australia, anybody who's imbibing a lot of the, oh, the popular media in the West. To conceptualize all of this, you can, you can sort of, imagine that there are we can personalize it or depersonalize it but there are there are spiritual ideas customs and habits that are planted deep within the movies the stories the characters and and those are all forming the spiritual intuitions of people commonly and he seems, um, Constantine seems to have pretty much a, a pretty common packet of them. There's lots of variation, but he's sort of, in his own words, he's sort of high status, affluent, now not dismissive of religion. That's religion S, religion Grim Grizz, you know, poked around at that the use of the word. And in many ways, this entire conversation is about the use of this word and, and what on earth we mean by it. So in the first video, we, we poked around a little bit at his idea that basically his listening to his intuition is his religion. You wouldn't say that his intuition is his God, but in some ways his intuition is the Holy Spirit and he sort of does what the intuition says. And Peterson, as 
it's interesting because among the in in the evangelical in this moment in the evangelical culture war there's a lot of back and forth over winsome and and jordan in many ways in these conversations if you go all the way back to let's say matt dillahunty and sam harris jordan has gotten increasingly winsome um in these conversations now i get a lot of complaining on twitter and in youtube comments about any attention i give to jordan because you don't like jordan's politics or you don't you 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 basically have jordan mapped out as a bigot because he's homophobic or he's uh, playing around with ideas about climate change and the ukraine war and he should stick to his lane etc 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 on, on Twitter, I engaged someone who was making these complaints, as he has before, and I pointed um, John Howard Yoda, Yoder out to him. John Howard Yoder is likely the preeminent Anabaptist theologian of the 20th century in North America, and he also had a, a serious Me Too problem that came up late in his life. Now, do you just sort of wave away everything that John Howard Yoda did, Yoder did um, because of these issues. I think most of us can, uh, these issues are not beyond thinking about in terms of, let's say, to the degree to which you want to follow someone as a guide, let's say. But that, that obviously doesn't dismiss all of their ideas. And one of the things that we have now with social media is that people are pre presenting much more of their lives in a very public way. Imagine, if you will, that all we had of Jordan Peterson are newspaper articles and basically what we have in print or even what we have in print plus what he's done on public television. In, in other words, imagine all we had with Jordan Peterson was anything possible to have even before 2007. So we'll even add web pages and internet articles. Social media has radically changed our ability to view people and also our view of them. So I wanna, I wanna pick up at this point in the conversation and uh, listen to a little bit more. Different example. All right, you have different examples. You have your anger. Okay. Anger. Fine. Right. Let's use anger. Yes. Okay. So, so, so then we might say, well, what sort of being is anger? And it's definitely the case that you get angry in your own way. But it's also the case that if you get angry, everyone can tell that you're angry. And part of the reason they can tell is because they get angry enough like you to understand what the hell's possessing you. Fine. And so this is part of the collective unconscious problem. That, that's another way of thinking about it, or part of the problem that we share universal biologically predicated motivational and emotional structures. There's an element of it that is idiosyncratic and that's unique to you. And, you know, religiously speaking, that would be the personal nature of your relationship with God, which isn't trivial. But then there's a universal... Or, or in this case, your personal relationship with your relationship with anger. And then... You'll notice how this is migrating because, of course, Jordan Peterson says, you know, the being that's anger. And so right away we understand that anger is a personality. And I get a bunch of you, 
maybe not you who are still watching me, a bunch of people who used to watch me, a bunch of people who are still in this conversation two or three years ago, right there would say, well, anger is a behavior. Um, anger is an emotion. Anger, and, and Jordan sort of backs up the clock by saying, oh, now wait a minute. Um, there's actually a very long tradition of talking about these in other terms. And technically, in psychology, anger might be more likened to a personality or anger is a, 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 anger is a multi-personal thing that we all participate in. And that's why I can notice you, I can notice anger in you because I notice it in me. And so there's something, something about anger that bridges us. And that, that can certainly have a psychological, it can certainly have a cultural you know, different cultures will probably express anger in somewhat different ways, but also in some common ways. In other words, our understanding about the nature of these things is quite a bit more sophisticated. And, and he's trying to update it from, let's say, the modernist frame, which imagine that, well, we're all these sort of objects in space. reality of it, right? Because if your intuitions, for example, were so idiosyncratic that no one else at all experienced them, you, not, you could not communicate with anyone else. You certainly couldn't live with other people, right? You'd be so far afield from the norm. And this does happen to people, by the way, who are absolute creative geniuses from time to time. But most of the time, that voice that's speaking to you speaks in a voice that's similar to the manner in which the voice speaks to other people. Which is also why I think we have... In, in other words, he's, he's making the point that I made in the first video that your intuitions aren't sort of, um, you know, divine, you know, God shooting down into you. Your your intuitions and your emotions aren't divine. They are formed. And, and you would imagine that in a world so deeply penetrated by by, let's say, materialism, and that everything is sort of emergent, that this would be obvious. But a strange aspect of the current spiritual fad is that emotions are somehow divinized. Emotions are somehow sacred. Emotions come from the secret, sacred self. And that's why, again, there's, there's a real strain of Gnosticism in our current culture that remains. Have something like a universality of conscience. It's, it's an interesting thought, but I'm still not persuaded uh, by that. If two cans of Coke both have the same shape, does that mean they're connected? See, what's interesting about his, his example is it's sort of like the blind man and the elephant thing. Once you say blind man and elephant, you already have a shared understanding of an elephant. So in other words, you can't tell the story in a way that actually validates the point you're trying to make with the story. When you say two cans of Coke, you're better off saying there are two things. Are they the same? And then you start to go through the process of, okay, what's what the process of category? And you can listen to Jordan and Verveke and Peugeot talk about category. And basically where the conversation has gone is that you're, you're probably not going to get cate category just simply from emergence.
there's going to have to be something coming down. There's going to have to be something coming down. The question of categorization is a super difficult one, and there's probably going to be some element of emanation of of an idea of the category of can that these some that sometimes fit to. And but again, by the way he asked the question, it, it already it's sort of already sneaking in an answer. And that's why you have two things. How do you know that they're a can? Well see you almost can't say the question without basically it's sort of like begging the question. Well, they're connected in some ways because you wouldn't use the word same otherwise, right? Because you're implying a connection by the, by the fact implying of, their, similarity. of their identity. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what I mean. You're, you're implying similarity. And similarity is a very complex concept. I mean, Look, you might say that things are... From a spiritual point of view, I, I'm... I, okay, okay. So similarity. So they say, well, I have two cans. Uh, one is a can of beans and the other is a can of a highly radioactive... Um, a highly radioactive compound or highly explosive compound, suddenly, well, okay, they're both cans, but we're going to approach them in very different ways. And now he sort of spirits, pivots to spiritual and, okay, well, now we're back at that word. And what on earth do we mean by that word? Because spiritual, you can go back to the Gospel of John, John 3, spirit moves the tree. You don't see the wind, but you see the tree moving. In other words, spirit is that which shapes and forces and creates the world. And see, part of the problem that he had in the previous approach to the question was he started with can. In other words, he already started with the spiritual answer. And, well, there's two cans of Coke. Well, you just gave away the answer. How do I know that there are two cans of Coke? What's can? What's Coke? Where do these ideas come from? What's the difference between Coke and carbonated sugar water? Um, so you can see... This is this is a tricky conversation. Actually, not in disagreement. Look, you might say that things are from a spiritual point of view. I, I'm actually not in disagreement with you. I had a very interesting experience. I studied hypnosis for a long time. Okay, and even what he said from a spiritual point of view, I'm not in disagreement with you. It's like, oh, what exactly do you mean by that? But again, for the purpose of a conversation like this, it's really hard to just stop the conversation. And say, please tell me what you mean by spirit, and please, you you just you just basically said. You know, you said basically, well, we don't know what the similarity is. And you just said, well, here, by a spiritual point of view, we're on the same page. Like, what? Uh, and in, in hypnosis, there is uh, an exercise that you can do. I talked about this when we were on Joe Rogan's show uh, called the deep trance identification. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, but what they do is essentially once someone is in the deep state of trance, your identity can be treated sort of like a set of clothes that you can take off uh, and put on someone else's identity in that state and try. That's in some ways a nice analogy to um, emanation. So you have the person with all their characteristics and suddenly you clothe yourself with another identity. All right. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses that analogy in the New Testament, you know, clothe yourself with you know, the works of the spirit, not the works of the flesh. And people will often use this to uh, pick up the habits of people that they wish to emulate or things like that. And when we were doing these exercises in this hypnosis class, 
Uh, first, uh, I did it with a, this very sweet, gentle South African lady who wanted to try on some kind of American preacher. And when we went through the process with her and she opened her eyes, she was that guy. Right, that, and it, it, it was, I had to run out of the room because that's how much it scared me, actually, that this was possible. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but when, when I did... Now, now, what's interesting about this is, obviously, she already had sort of an emanation idea about what an American preacher was. And this is back to my point about intuition is already formed. Her idea of what American preacher was, did she look like me? I'm an American preacher. No, no, no. That it's a, it's sort of this, it's sort of this identity. It's this archetype. It's out there in movies, and you see them trotted out in movies. And I always watch them, and I think, yeah, that's supposed to be a preacher, and I'm a preacher, and I'm not that, and I don't want to be that, and so on and so forth. Now, if she had asked to, um, let's let's imagine that she had zero experience and see i can't even make a sentence here without having to rely on um okay so i'll, I'll just i'll say well let's say she wanted to inhabit the the female medicine assassin of the mabingo tribe in mozambique i just made all that stuff up now, if she had absolutely no understanding of it, well, then suddenly you'd say, and, and then let's say suddenly she begins um, speaking in a language that she never heard, and nobody else in the room had spoken a language that they ever heard, and somehow you could record it and videotape it, and then you could go down to Mozambique, and you could find the Mabingo tribe, and you could find the very rare medicine woman assassin of the Mabingo tribe, and there suddenly you realize, <gasps> She was able to, a la hypnosis, speak in a language that she didn't have. That she, there's no way on earth she ever could have known. And then you've got, of course, the amazing Randy and his. I don't know if he's still running that thing. Um, you know, the million dollar quest, and and would the amazing Randy cough off a million dollars? Because suddenly now we have a spiritual reality, which is see, nobody will ever because you can't. No, I should finish my sentences. No one will ever pay out. Because in many ways, you can't prove a negative. You can't prove that she never had any experience with the Mabingo tribe in Mozambique and the, and the, the medicine woman assassin that, um, of which there were maybe one or two available within the 20th century that were documented by an anthropologist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But no, she manifested a well-worn archetype, stereotype of an American preacher, and she did it so well that this guy freaked out and ran out of the room. Whereas if she had manifested something that he had never seen or heard of, well then, and I know a bunch of you are Roman Catholics and you're thinking about exorcists and you're thinking about all kinds of stories where people uh, start speaking languages that they, they cannot know and they do not know, and um, the world is full of some very strange things. And it's funny that we're using the word spiritual because obviously the idea would be that, let's say, through some means a spirit came upon her and inhabited her and acted in a certain way. Even though now, once we say hypnosis, we're saying, okay, well, that's something that we sort of understand. All right. And here's an archetype that we sort of understand. Okay. But, hmm... Deep beneath his faith in his intuition is, in fact, sort of an enchanted idea of intuition 
that he's going to um, that that he sort of halfway believes can't really defend, won't really defend because he'll probably lose status in a secular world. But this is these are all the kinds of things that we're all the kinds of doors that we're knocking on here. I had a different. I, I, I'm very disagreeable generally, so I try to be difficult whenever I'm doing anything like this. So rather than being a person, I went. What if I try to identify as the universe, whatever that is, in this process, right? And when okay, now remember the point that I just made. You still have that point. Okay, well let's. What what do you mean by the universe? Well, everything. Oh, okay. Um, um. Do you know what it feels like to be a duck-billed platypus? Do you know what it feels like to be a cocker spaniel? Do you know what it feels like to be a housefly? In other words, we're going to run a astoundingly imaginative. We're going to run an astoundingly imaginative experiment, and we're probably going to leverage how many different mappings that we sort of implicitly absorbed from movies and. Um, and whatever things that, that sort of felt spiritual and one connected to all sort of things. And, and what's really incredible here is that we started this by saying, well, I don't believe in a God, basically a transcendent God. Um, I just sort of have faith in my intuition. But now suddenly we're going to flip over and we're going to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to like self-hypnotize myself. So I imagine that I'm you know, have the consciousness of the universe. You just have to say, now, wait a minute. Jordan was just working on you with respect to the idea that even with something as simple as anger, you are participating in something that is formed within you culturally. And for that to actually work, there's a deep connection between you and these other people. And part of what's amazing to me is, and, and what you find in this conversation, which is so common that you hear out there in sort of spiritual chatter among people, people will on one hand say, well, I can't believe in a creator God that sort of transcends the universe, but everything is connected. I figured that out when I had my psychedelic trip, that everything is connected. It's like, no, wait a minute. Um you'll have a little bit more coherence if suddenly divinity is something that we're all sharing. If you're sort of a pantheist, even moving towards a word that Luke wants me to say, which I'm not going to say. Um, so if there's a, if there's a sort of a pantheism around there, and this to me goes all the way back to C.S. Lewis's comments about pantheism, which is that, well, basically the shoe, um, the shoe fits because pantheism is almost the definition of religion. I should just probably pull that little quote up. This is C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, his chapter, Christianity and quote-unquote religion. Begins with, those who make religion their God will not have God for their religion. Having eliminated the confusions, which comes from ignoring the relations of thought, imagination, and speech, we may now return to our question. The Christians say that God has done miracles. The modern world, even when it believes in God, and even when it has seen the defenselessness of nature, does not. It thinks God would not. Now, he's really dealing with something that was much more um, deep in the 20th century than it is now. Um, not, not that people are, you can, it's much easier to find a lot of people out there that will say, and that this has always been true, all miracles happen, such and such and such, but... Um, they're, they're a little vague on the whole thing. It thinks that God would not do such a sort of thing. 
we have any reason for supposing that the modern world is right. I agree that the sort of God conceived by popular religion of our times would almost certainly work no miracles. Question is whether that popular religion is at all likely to be true. True. I call it religion advisedly. We who defend Christianity find ourselves constantly opposed not only by the irreligion of our hearers, but by their real religion. And that's what really we're getting into when we're, we're looking at what, what Jordan Peterson is dealing with with Constantine. Speak about beauty, truth, and goodness, or about a God who's simply the indwelling principle of these. Speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we all are all parts, a pool of generalized spirituality to which we all flow, and you will command friendly interest. That is as true in the 1940s and 50s when Lewis was writing as it is today. But the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another, a concrete, choosing, commanding, prohibiting God with a determinate character. People become embarrassed or angry. Such a conception seems to them primitive and cruel and even irrelevant or irreverent. The popular religion excludes miracles because it excludes the living God of Christianity and believes instead in a kind of God who obviously would not do miracles or indeed anything else. This popular religion may roughly be called pantheism, and we must now examine its credentials. In the first place, it is usually based on quite a fanciful picture of the history of religion. According to this picture, man starts by inventing spirits to explain natural phenomena. At first, he imagines these spirits to be exactly like himself. As he gets more enlightened, they become less manlike, less anthropomorphic, as the scholars call it. Their anthropomorphic attitudes drop off one by one, first the human shape, the human passions, the personality, will, activity, in the end, every concrete or positive attribute whatsoever. There is left in the end a pure abstraction, mind as such, spirituality as such. God, instead of being a particular entity with real character of his own, becomes simply the whole show looked at in a particular way or a theoretical point at which all the lines of human aspiration would meet if produced to infinity. And since on the modern view, the final stage of anything is the most refined and civilized stage, this religion is held to be more profound, more spiritual, more enlightened than belief in Christianity. Now this imagined history of religion is not true. Pantheism certainly is, as its advocates would say, congenial to the modern mind. But the fact that the shoe slips on easily does not prove that it is a new shoe, much less that it will keep your feet dry. Pantheism is congenial to our minds not because it is the final stage in a slow process of enlightenment, but because it is almost as old as we are. It may even be the most primitive of all religions, and the orenda of, an, of a savage tribe has been interpreted by some to be an all-pervasive spirit. It is immorial in India. The Greeks rose above it only at their peak, in the thought of Plato and Aristotle. Their successors relapsed into the great pantheistic system of the Stoics. Modern Europe escaped it only while she remained predominantly Christian, and Giordano, Bruno, and Spinoza returned to it. With Hegel, it became almost the agreed philosophy of highly educated people, while the most popular pantheism of Wordsworth, Carlyle, and Emerson convey the same doctrine to those on a lower cultural level. As far as being the final religious refinement, pantheism is in fact the permanent natural bend of the human mind, the permanent ordinary level below which man sometimes sinks under the influence of priestcraft and superstition, but above which his own unaided efforts can never raise him for very long. 
Platonism and Judaism and Christianity, which has incorporated both, have proven the only things capable of resisting it. It is the attitude into which the human mind automatically falls when it is left to itself. No wonder we find it congenial. If religion means simply that man, what man says about God, especially if God is everything, looking at the universe through the universe, and in fact, today, the most common circumlocution, people give up a belief in God and they'll talk about the universe doing this and that, and then they'll look for blessings from the universe, and universe sort of becomes the substitute for God, and this is exactly C.S. Lewis's point. And not what God does about man, then pantheism almost is religion, and religion in that sense has, in the long run, only one real formidable opponent, namely Christianity. And on he goes from there. So, Prepare, prepare yourself for more of that. Okay, come on, mouse. There we go. Back to you. When I was doing this, um, all I could feel was try to identify like this. So rather than being a person, I went, what if I try to identify as the universe, whatever that is, in this process, right? And when I was doing this, um, all I could feel was my heartbeat slowed down and it was really the only thing that I was conscious of as it was happening. And I could feel my heart expanding and the two things happened simultaneously. One, I felt an infinite connection with all other human beings. Remember what he just started saying earlier? <laughs> Remember what he said way back then about his intuition? I don't understand how this connects. Suddenly now, before... His intuition has him be a solely thing and he can't imagine a God. Now, suddenly, he's connected to everything. In that moment. And the second thing I felt, and this was just, I'm not saying this is what it is and I'm not making any truth claim about it, but this is what I experienced at the time. You know how the universe is... Now, even just that little... Now, we all know why he made that little comment. Because if he stands up and says, thus says the Lord, then everybody's going to kvetch. So he can't, but, but he's basically just said, well, when I saw the universe as God does, and when I sort of in my imaginative or even self-hypnotic state, or maybe I took some substance to in that moment, realize Godness in me and Godness all over the place. That just sounds a little pretentious, especially if you're going to be an agnostic. So you, you make a little statement like that and you just sort of pull back. So and it's sort of like saying, I mean no offense, but, and then you say the absolutely most offensive thing that you can imagine. It's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> if you really meant, meant no offense, you probably wouldn't have said that thing. So, and, and I don't want to lean too hard on the guy, but this is how people talk. And people talk this way all the time. And people talk this way on the internet partly because they watch everyone else talk this way on the internet. I was watching the evening news with my wife the other day, and there was some disaster somewhere, some flood or something that came through. And so then what the local news crews go out, and they have this guy with the camera, and I've got a picture of me when someone knocked out all the the windows of the church a number of years ago. And um, so then the news crew came out because a, a synagogue had just sort of been worked over, and so then a church was worked over, and somebody thought, well, this is this is some hate crime against religion. It turned out to be a hate crime by a guy against his father who was mad at his father, so he took a steel bar and broke all our windows. It's like, hey, dude, if you're mad at your father, go break his windows. <laughs> We're not your daddy. 
So, but you put that TV news camera in front of people and you know what they say? They say whatever everybody else has said when you put the TV news camera in front of them. And there's like a thousand little scripts that go around the culture and it's like, well, when there's a natural disaster or people are hurting or you, you, and they put the news camera in front of you, you say exactly what everybody else says. And what's really funny is if you sort of stopped them on the street and said, now, do you know the scripts of what to say when the news camera's in front of you? They'd say, I have no idea. Nobody's ever written this script or given it to me or showed it to me. And I've never sat down to try to memorize it just in case a TV news crew comes. Yet when the TV news, news crew comes, boop, out comes the strip. And he says, most people say exactly what just about everybody else says and that's exactly what's going on here so these are all scripts that he's picked up by watching how many spiritual people talk about things and i'm not trying to pick a christian versus non-christian game christians are just as bad because as a pastor in a church what you do is you have sunday school class and then you ask people questions and people give you all the same answers that they've heard other people give and again if i'd asked them a quiz about it well, they wouldn't be able to do it. But once you put them in a Sunday school class and you ask them the question, you know, the shortest answer is always Jesus. But many of the other answers just come out because these are all the kinds of things that they heard from their parents. And these are all the scripts they sort of tell. And so what we have here is basically sort of the, I don't believe in God, I'm an agnostic. But then again, really, when I think about spirituality and religion, I'm a pantheist, even if I'd never used that word. But that's the script that everybody says. Expanding. And it's expanding. I'm not saying this is what it is, and I'm not making any truth claim about it, but this is what I experienced at the time. You know how the universe is expanding, and it's expanding at an accelerating rate. The, the, the thing that... So we're going to pull a little bit of modern physics in that the vast majority of us have absolutely no understanding, uh, but somehow we heard somewhere that the university is expanding, so I'm going to stick that in my script. I mean, I want to say popped into my head, but it didn't feel like it popped into my head. The thing that I experienced was, what if the universe expanding is a half a heartbeat of some greater organism to which we're all connected? So I am entirely... Did you ever watch Horton Hears a Who? Kind of same thing. ...be open to the possibility that we are connected. Uh, and the truth is that part of my hesitation to... to call myself religious is not even the bearded guy in the sky in whom I don't believe because I don't believe in him. It's also the fact that I'm just very wary of organizing. I'm trolling you about the beard. How many comments were there about the beard in the last video? You know what? It's just the beard. It grows on my face unbidden. You know what? Those of you who haven't been around long enough to know that my beard has cycles like the moon, get used to it religion being a perverted way of having that conversation very i don't believe because i don't believe in him it's also the fact that i'm just very wary of organized religion being a perverted way of having that conversation that can lead to a lot of problems now what's really funny here is of course what's really funny here is of course that it was it was on a it was on a rebel wisdom campfire thing and i remember um Paul Kingsnorth was there and, you know, well, maybe, maybe Eastern Orthodoxy will be like the right form of Christianity that doesn't have all the violent legacies of control and tyranny like Catholicism and Protestantism. He's just like, <laughs> Catholicism and Orthodoxy have both been state religions. Um, 
I wrote a big thing about that on Voices today. Anyway, let's continue. Okay, well, so look, look, fair enough on all fronts. And let me address those points one by one. We'll get back to the identity. It's very winsome when it comes to this. Identification with the universe notion here in a moment. But on the I'm afraid of organized religion front, look. Wary. There's one of the things I, hey, man, fair enough. And I think that's the evil uncle problem is that like every organized social uh, unit has a proclivity to degenerate into a blind, a willfully blind tyranny. Mm. And that, that's, that's part of the existential reality of mankind. Now, one of the things I've observed about Harris and Dawkins, and this is particularly true of Sam Harris, is that Harris is very concerned with the problem of evil and validly so and deeply so. He's committed his life to it. And he would like to establish an objective morality. And the reason he would like to do that is because he believes in the reality of the objective and he also believes in the necessity of the moral because he's concerned with evil. And so- Now, it's really important. I mean, Peterson is getting better and better at this stuff. And it's really important to sort of slow that down. Okay, he wants an objective morality. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by objective? Why is Why are we talking about that when we started out with sort of a religion of, of personal intuition and then slid easily into the old worn shoe of pantheism, but then sort of made rebuttals about that. And, and, and Peterson wants to say, okay, but um, what, what, what is, what is really the, what is really the motivation behind all of this objective talk about objective, this and objective that isn't it sort of like, well, we're getting back to, the old thesis, if you go all the way back to 2017 and 2018, when we started talking about Peterson and all this stuff that, you know, the Protestants and the Catholics were fighting about, well, if we, if we only get a really good text of the Bible, if we have it like in black and white, then we can agree. Ah, that didn't go so well. So then, um, well, what if we had, what if, what if we can like measure how long it takes to drop a sphere and it's be like a 17th century measuring, which won't be like a nuclear clock. But today we have understanding that gravity is just ever so slightly different, and we've got theory of relativity all that time. But if it's if if our if our definitions of right and wrong are just so airtight that and now, now there's a way again if you read C.S. Lewis's addendum on the abolition of man. It's not that we need to sort of be reminded that murdering people is wrong. We all understand that. What we differ on is when it's justifiable. That tends to be how. We, but we want this objective thing because here's the the, the the thing about the object, the quest for objectivity in this is in many ways sort of like the quest for the desire about pantheism. And one of my favorite examples that I've used often, about pantheism, it comes from the movie Avatar. I haven't watched the second one yet. I'll probably take a peek at it when it shows up on one of these streaming services. But the funny thing about pantheism is that, you know, they're all there in this world and they got the hair and they clutch onto the flying creatures and they have the big tree and they have all of this stuff and it's all pantheism it's all one it's all one except when of course the evil colonial warlike materialist army is there for the unobtainium 
And then suddenly nature starts to fight back. And what was it, EULA or something like that? Isn't that isn't that what you have to sign when you get a piece of software? Isn't that the EULA? Um, EULA is with us. It's like, that's exactly Lewis's point. You can't, the reason the force is so attractive is because you can wield it. And the impersonal doesn't choose. That's why we don't want universe to be personal because once it has a will, it will oppose us. And so what we sort of want is to have morality be objective so that can we can wield it. But that is, in fact, basically the way things are already. You already know that murder is wrong. You're wielding it is the cases in which you believe it is justifiable for some greater good or for some common good or for something else like this. What you don't want is another will above you that's going to say, um, no, you're wrong, and I'm going to hold you accountable. Now, we want that for, let's say, genocidal dictators who have sort of slunk out of the world without a Nuremberg trial like Hitler and Stalin and Mao. We certainly want, and, and for, you know, whoever messed up your child or drunk driver uh, killed your loved one or something, you know, then suddenly all the language of hell comes trotting out of people who are, for the most part, just nice pantheists. But no, when, when they've done something bad about you, now you want a divine judge. Oh, okay. Unless, of course, you're, you're like someone who really believes in divine judgment, like the Amish, who make a scholarship fund for the man, uh, for the children of the man who murdered all their little girls in school. But where on earth would they learn such a thing apart from religion? Oh, you know, I'm kind of on board with that, which is why Sam and I really actually can talk. But the problem that Sam has conceptually, as far as I'm concerned, is that he identifies the religious enterprise with the totalitarian spirit. Mm. And that's the same mistake the postmodernists make when they identify Western culture with the patriarchy. It's like, look. Now, notice how useful this spirit language is. Because the totalitarian spirit. Now, suddenly we can say, oh, yeah. Communists and Nazis are sort of at two ends of a spectrum. Communists and fascists. But they both participate in the totalitarian spirit. And if there's something about that's sort of holding the West together, it's sort of this anti-totalitarianism. But we discover this, this sort of freedom is actually sort of hard to maintain. And if you go back to this, this Tim Keller um, comment that I've played on a number of videos, it's, I'll, it's on the Vanderclips channel now, you realize that, well, a lot of people sort of figure that we should somehow cheat this freedom in order to maintain this freedom. We have to sort of get rid of free speech in order to maintain free speech. And Peterson actually sort of, was it in this this video where he starts out talking about, yeah, that's his sort of, um, yeah, bud of what he sees going on in Florida. Now he's got connections to Florida because he's either got a home in Florida or Michaela's living in Miami. Uh, Miami's now become the center of the Daily Wire stuff and all that stuff. So he's he's paying attention to Florida politics, but that's that's his point. It is the case that large-scale systems can ossify, become willfully blind and degenerate into tyranny. But that doesn't mean that that's their central animating spirit. 
-hmm. Now, you see the same thing with the 1619 project in the United States, you know, this, this claim that the fundamental foundation, so animating spirit, that drove the formulation of the United States was the tyrannical desire to dominate, oppress, and enslave. And you have to say, well, let's give the devil his due. Every human organization tilts towards corruption by power. But that doesn't mean that's the central animating spirit. And so I would say, well, the same thing applies on the religious front. Like, my sense is, and, and we can certainly discuss this, is that, and this is really useful to think about in relationship to Wilbur Wilberforce. So he was a Christian Protestant. William Wilberforce. Operating in, the, in, the, in Britain. And he, in many ways, single-handedly forced the British ant, ant, Empire to not only abandon slavery, but to oppose it on the world seas for 175 years. And, he, and it imposed it upon the Islamic world, too. He did that in 100% as a consequence of being animated by the, the spirit of Protestant liberalism. Mm. And that was a consequence of the dissemination and distribution of the Bible, because the idea was human beings are made in the image of God and slavery is wrong, period. That's a transcendent truth and economic rationale be damned, there's no excuse for it. And so, so I think the problem with the skepticism that you're expressing in relationship to the religious enterprise is that it doesn't sufficiently separate the wheat from the chaff. I see what you're and saying, I, but I, I, we're not disagreeing because let me take you back to the beginning of this conversation. Wheat from the chaff, of course, another biblical reference. When I did say to you that I believe religion is useful, right? Um, and I, I'm fond of, I can't remember. Good for thee, but not for me. Who said this, but uh, someone said that the poor believe uh, religion is true, the middle class believes it's false, and the rich believe it's useful. There we go. There's that quote. That's a, that's a good quote. I'm going to have to, that's, that's one of those that you just sort of tuck in and say, oh, that's a, that's a good one. Or the powerful believe it's useful. Uh, I, I'm not powerful or rich, but I certainly consider it useful. And I, uh, You're above average powerful and rich. I can see that the lack of it has its negative impact as well. I just don't wish to submit myself to a rigid, a rigid ideology of that kind, combined with... Ah, and now we're back to Lewis's point. This is where Lewis ends the chapter. Men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. I do not wonder. Here lies the deepest taproot of pantheism and of the objection to traditional imagery. It was hatred not at bottom, because it pictured him as a man, because it pictured him as king, or even warrior. The pantheist's God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. You can wield the force. The force is your servant. And in fact, if you look at Christian Smith's work, um, even Christians sort of slide into um, moralistic therapeutic deism where God is sort of a cosmic butler. And you can have uh, Dennis Prager will talk about that during the, um, the Exodus seminar. The pantheist's God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There's no danger at any time. Um, at any time, heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. If he, is, if he were the truth, 
then he could really say that all Christian images of kingship were a historical accident of which our religion ought to be cleansed. It is with a shock that we discover them to be indispensable. We've had a shock like that before in connection with smaller things. When the line pulls at the hand, that's why people like to fish. You've got that, that, that water, that mask in front of you, and you put that little thing in there, and you just wait, wait. And it's like, and that's, it's just that moment of, oh, I'm, I'm in contact with my, I've somehow developed a line of consciousness with, of all things, a creature quite different from myself, a fish. When the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness. So here the shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue that we have been following. It is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. It is shocking to meet agency where we thought we were alone, the agent in the universe. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore it is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could, and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us. It's practically writing. Star Wars. A vast power which we can tap best of all. It makes no difference how heavy, young Luke. Here, co here comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. The fact right. I don't believe in the big the guy in the sky, right? Okay, so let's not make it, okay, so let's agree that you shouldn't subordinate yourself arbitrarily to a rigid structure. Now, you might want to do that sporadically to do... No, notice, Peterson's getting really good at this. There's a lot of definition. Discipline yourself, hmm. right? But the, the object shouldn't be sub submission. Now, the, what's weird in, in the biblical narrative, you know, is that the, the goal is not submission. It's so weird. It's covenantal relationship. And covenantal relationship is actually relationship. So one of the things you see... Protestant. We're getting very Protestant. Now, I don't mean Protestant because I, I think a lot of what Jordan is actually doing is I think he's working to end the protest. And, and I think the protest... We're making progress in ending the protest. And, and we might even get to the point, maybe if the Orthodox come along that the whole family comes back together. That's the goal. That's the goal. God wants his family together. Luke 15. See, with Moses, for example, and you also see this with Abraham, is that they're constantly negotiating with God. That's why my, the name of my next book, by the way, is We Who Wrestle With God. It's a negotiation. It's not a submission. And so God is always threatening to wipe out the Israelites in the desert. He's just sick and tired of their idol. Now, it's important to understand that Peterson plays in hyperbole. Now, that is not a bad thing. Jesus plays in hyperbole. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You don't see a lot of one-handed Christians walking around, and a lot of hands have, you know, brought people to sin. Part of Jesus' message is that it's not really your hand that's causing you to sin. So he's got hyperbole here. And um, 
you know, don't, don't, don't take it too far. It's hyperbole. Worship and their whiny resentment in the Israelites in the desert. He's just sick and tired of their idol worship and their whiny resentment in their... Because it is both, in fact, there's an, there's, there's certainly submission, but it's not blind submission. And, and again, the best, the best analogy is the analogy that Jesus gives of the parent and child. The good child submits to the good parent. Why? Because the good child trusts the good parent. Why? Because the good parent has been seen as trustworthy. Now, now we're back into theodicy territory here, but that's the metaphor. Bitterness and their worship of the past tyranny. And he's constantly threatening just to wipe them out and start again. And that's the apocalypse, I suppose. And Moses is constantly interceding on their behalf and telling God he shouldn't break his word. And the odd thing in the story is that God actually listens, which is rather preposterous. But, but the reason that's happening is to mitigate against... And see Genesis 18 when God listens to Abraham in their negotiation about the, the demise of Sodom. Exactly the problem that you described, which is to have the relationship with the transcendent degenerate into nothing but a blind obedience. And then the danger of that is... Well, a blind obedience to who? And I, I see this as a threat in Islam, in the more fundamentalist forms of Islam. It's like, well, you should submit to Allah. It's like, hey, fair enough. Allah as interpreted by who? Oh, uh, totalitarian misogynistic mullahs. How about no? I, I don't buy your Allah, and well, I don't why? see who made you the, the right precise. And even okay, if I so believe... This, we, are, we are indeed Protestant. In the bearded guy in the sky, I'm not sure I need a middleman to talk to him. Right? Well, that makes you a good. Ah, now notice. Notice what has happened here. We started out with sort of intuition, and then we're sort of into, then we're sort of into pantheism, and then we're sort of dealing with, well, yeah, the submission thing. And, but now it's not just submission, it's that it's sort of the taproot, and now we get into our epistemic anxiety. I'll decide for myself. And and that's really part of the point of ending the protest because again, Protestant the Protestant Reformation was one of these deep retconning movements through history. And truth be told, it's really hard to find people who even in orthodox and roman catholic circles aren't at least some some deep way impacted by the Protestant. I've said it before on my channel, if I were to, if I were to, let's say people often ask me, well, Paul, why, why aren't you Roman Catholic yet? Why aren't you Orthodox yet? Well, for me to go Roman Catholic or Orthodox would be a very Protestant move because I would have to be choosing. And here I am, I've addressed this in some of the question and answers, here I am staying in my denomination, blooming where I'm planted. For as long as there's a CRC garden to bloom in, I suppose. Good Protestant. You know. <laughs> well, maybe talk to him. Even in problem. the bearded guy in the sky, I'm not sure I need a middleman to talk to him. Right. Well, that makes you a good Protestant. You know. <laughs> well, maybe but, that's but look, what we, I could, am. we could we could well we could also go down that rabbit hole a little bit, you know, and it's worth it because I also think this is how we ended up in this postmodern mm. excess liberal conundrum. So. Jung talked about Catholicism, as we mentioned, and he talked about the utility of the and mercy of the confessional.
and that possibility of atonement. But he also laid out, you know, the dangers of that. The dangers of the Catholic structure is, uh, what would you say, a tilt towards authoritarian rigidity, which is what the Protestants rebelled against. But then the question is, well, what's the danger of the Protestant revolution? And the danger is that everybody becomes his own church. And then here's the problem. You tell me what you think about this. Here's the logical conclusion of that. You're your own church. See, he's, Peterson is working through the history. It's good. You're your own God. Now you can say what God said to Moses out of the depths of the burning bush. You can say, I am what I am. And I would say that's what the identity politics types do. They say, look, I am so superordinate in my own self-defining identity that no matter what identity claim I put forward, it is incumbent upon you to accept it as if it comes from an omniscient source. Mm. And I think, like I, as far as I can tell, Constantine, that's where we are, right? Incle increasingly by force of law. If you make an identity claim, no matter how preposterous, which implies that there's some limit to identity claims, by the way. Like, I have to accept, well, there's... Now, if you go back over five years of video, there's actually quite a few videos that connect to this. Um, I think it was a conversation a er, number of years ago. It was James Lindsay and Benjamin Boyce and made the observation that the one thing that the... It, so the the wokester deconstructs everything except for their own particular aspect and experience of oppression. All right, it's the one thing they can't and won't deconstruct. Okay, what is the thing that you can't and won't deconstruct? That's actually your frame. Okay, your frame is the way in which you view the world. It's the one presupposition. It's the one assumed thing because you need a fixed point in order to in order to figure out the relationship of all the other points. That's that's the issue with the frame. Now, if you go back, you can find a video I made of God is sort of the frame of all frames. And, and so very much what Peterson says right here, which is correct, is that the one thing you can't deconstruct is your God. Your experience of oppression, let's say, of, of being of being a, uh, a black person or of being a gay person or being a transgender person or being a Native American person or whatever, whatever oppression that is. And now sort of what happens with this retconning of wokeness is that there's this great, there's this great line in Burge's book on, on Gerard about, about mimetic desire that when you engage in mimetic rivalry, you become like your rival. And so now with a lot of the anti-wokeness, we just have a lot of um, white people walking around playing the victim too. And it's like, oh, it's just mimetic rivalry. You've just joined the dance. And now the, the one thing you won't oppress, you won't deconstruct is your whiteness. And so in other words, in this grand scheme to eradicate racism, what we wind up doing is creating a whole bunch of um, a, a whole bunch of white racists. I mean, it's and that's the that's part of the irony of this entire movement is that your anti-racism is just making more people racist. And plenty of people have pointed that out. That's not new to me, but it's certainly what we see happening. One example in 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 Ontario right now that's become famous for its surreality. So there's a 
female teacher in, in a suburb in Toronto who has decided at the ripe old age of something approximating 50 that he's actually a woman. But he's not just a woman, man. He's, he's the earth goddess herself. And he wears these like 144 quadruple D prosthetic breasts. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this character. I have seen that. I'm, I'm sure that's right, exactly what gig- she is. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it's, he, she's an embodiment. And that's why it goes to goddess. It, it, it's where it has to go because it's the frame. Embodiment of that primordial so Jordan, earth goddess. Am I hearing you correctly? But, but he, if, if I look at what you're saying, then are you suggesting that we need God to agree on truth? I'm saying is that spirit which would enable us to agree on truth is, for all intents and purposes, equivalent to God and necessarily so. So without that, we cannot agree on what the truth is. Okay, well, okay, so look, I've been having the same conversation I'm having with you with Douglas Murray. Mm. Okay, and with Jonathan Pajot at the same time. Now, Murray was very attracted by outright atheism, and he was tempted and invited, as far as I can tell, to be part of the four horsemen of atheism coterie, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but the, it, it's been very interesting talking to Douglas in recent years because he's got to that point that you described, which is, let's say the aristocratic position that religion is useful, but he's actually stepped past that and doesn't know what to do with it. Mm. And, and I think that's the case for many people on the more traditional front now, is that, well, the metaphysic that unites us has to be grounded in something that isn't merely, that isn't merely political and, and semantic. That's the, it has to be grounded in something that's outside us and outside our system. Peterson made this point in, um, in the first point in the first biblical series on Genesis that oh, he'll make the same point now. We'll just let him. That's the right way of thinking about it. There has to be something transcendental about it, akin to that experience you yes, had. Of connection to all humanity, yes. Okay, now look, Sam Harris thinks the same thing, which is why he's off in meditative space half the time, right? Not just connection, but above. He has an unnameable God because then his, his semantic brain can't tear it to shreds. He understands that it's necessary to dip into the realm of the transcendent sporadically in order to renew yourself. You know, and he'll say, well, that's not religious. It's like, well, it's not totalitarian and it's not systematic. But that doesn't mean it's not religious. And then Harris, of course, his approach falls prey to the same problem as a kind of abstract Buddhism, which is, yeah, well, that's all well and good on the transcendental front, but how do you make that self, how do you make that manifest in life and how do you unite other people in that ethos? And that's a, that's a practical problem. And, you need intermediary structures to do that. Well, that's why I think religion is useful for uniting most people because my... So, these poor people out there that just aren't smart enough or wealthy enough or or cool enough or whatever, they need religion, but me, I'm, I'm above it. Um, yeah. My experience is they need it. I have many people in my life and in my family who cannot process their fear of death without religion. They just can't deal with it. Um, and we all, they all mask it and they all kind of- Oh, is that what it's for? Kind of deal with it in one way or another, but it is having the sense of 
something above them in that particular way that gives them the comfort to live their life. And there are other people who maybe don't need it. I, I certainly don't. Okay, to live their life. No, you really mean to behave properly, to be on the same page, to be a good citizen, to be a good neighbor, to be a good family member. Because if, if living my life basically boiled down to um, attacking all the men and raping all the women, well, there's my life. You say, no, 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 that's not the kind of life one ought to live. Oh, really? Say more about that ought. I enjoy my life. I know I'm going to die. I know that uh, my life only, this is my experience and my view, my life only has the meaning that I give to it. Uh, and I get to choose that now. Really? So so we're going to forget anything that Nietzsche said. We're just going to derive all these values ourselves. We're going to think them all up. And we say there is no God. Aha! I look in the mirror. Here I am. That puts in question the nature of morality. I appreciate that. And for, for society... That yes, it does. ...has to be a structure that gives you a sense of morality is. It has to give others a sense of morality. Uh, we all have to figure that out. Back to C.S. Lewis and the problem of pain. It's it's the strange thing about this, this morality. And he makes the point that in Judaism, the numinous and the moral, this is Moses and Exodus, suddenly become bound. The numinous is not the same as the morally good. And a man overwhelmed with awe is likely, if left to himself, to think the numinous... Um, the numinous object beyond good and evil. The numinous might be you You look up at the stars of the sky and it's like, wow, stars of the sky, that's incredible. You don't think about good and evil. You just look at the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the stars in the sky or Yosemite Valley or the Canadian Rockies. It's the it's the numinous. It's, it's awesome. You look at the power of a grizzly bear when you're in the Canadian Rockies and it's like, oh, grizzly bear, majesty. It's not about good or evil. It's about I'm going to get eaten. This brings us to the second strand or element in religion. All human beings um, that all the human beings that history has heard of acknowledge some kind of morality that is that is they feel towards certain prop proposed actions the experience expressed by words I ought or I ought not. These experiences resemble awe in one respect, namely that they cannot be logically deduced from the environment or physical experiences of the man who undergoes them. Look at Yosemite Valley, and it's like, I ought, I ought not. Maybe we ought to preserve this. If I could put time or the experience of Yosemite Valley in a bottle, that's what we try to do when we take pictures. You can shuffle, I want, and I am forced, and I shall be well advised, and I dare not, as long as you please, without getting out of them, the slightest hint of ought or ought not. In other words, with ought or ought not, just like with the numinous, we are sort of dealing with something transcendental. And once again, attempt to resolve the moral experience into something else always presuppose the very thing they're trying to explain, as when a famous psychoanalyst deduces from prehistoric, from, deduces, it, deduces it from prehistoric parasite. If the parasite produced a sense of guilt, what, what that was because man felt that they ought not to have committed it. If they did not feel so, it could produce no sense of guilt. Morality, like numinous awe, is a jump. In it, man goes beyond anything that can be given in the facts of experience. It has one characteristic too remarkable to be ignored. The moralities accepted among men may differ, 
though not at bottom as widely as it is often claimed, but they all agree in prescribing a behavior which their adherents fail to practice. All men alike stand condemned, not by alien codes of ethic, but by their own. Remember the point I made in the previous thing about what if your cell phone was recording all of the all of the moral obligations that you put upon your neighbor, and what if Judgment Day didn't have any laws which you couldn't somehow have imagined, but you were only judged by that which you tried to impose upon your neighbor? Here's the strange thing about morality. The moralities accepted among men may differ, though not at bottom as widely as is claimed, but they all agree in prescribing a behavior which their adherents fail to practice. All men alike stand condemned, not by alien codes of ethic, but by their own, and all men therefore are conscious of guilt. The second element in religion is the consciousness not merely of moral law, but of a moral law at once approved and disobeyed. This consciousness is neither a logical nor an illogical inference from the facts of experience. If we did not bring it to our experience, we could not find it there. It is either explicable, it is either inexplicable illusion or else revelation. Which is why I say religion is useful. But for me personally, it's not. So when you say you choose it, but let's 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 go down that road for a minute, because all right, so you open yourself up to an intuition. And tell, tell me if I've got this wrong. Of and the intuition makes itself manifest. And the choice is whether you accept that or not. Mm -hmm. Does that seem reasonable? Yes. Okay, so that doesn't mean that the source of the intuition is you precisely. It does mean that you have a relationship of choice, though. Okay. But I don't think that's any different than this covenantal idea that I described earlier. I think it's a reflection of the same. I, I'm not trying to reduce what you're saying to that. I'm, I'm saying aware that, that. Yeah, we're having okay. a good faith okay. discussion. So he's being very winsome. What I don't understand, yeah. and I'm open to be persuaded, is why you, the leap has to be made to the idea that this thing that I experience and that I have as a let's call let's say it's a tool, right? I can dip into the. Now, he's saying, I don't see where the leap has to be made. And here's one of the major points about these kinds of debates, because we don't get them by, we don't get there by reason, because the issue really isn't reason. The issue is, and again, Lewis puts this, the issue is surrender. We're not foggy about right and wrong. We're rebellious. It's not that we need to be educated into something. It's that we need to lay down our arms. And this current faddish circumlocution, which is, I don't understand. Notice when people say those things, it's usually not, I don't understand. It's usually sort of a masked complaint in sort of assuming humble ignorance. No, I think you probably do understand. I think what you said earlier is much more the point that you don't want to submit. Now, fair enough, there's negotiation involved, as we said before. It's not just a matter of submitting because we go all the way back to the beginning of this conversation and he said, but I can't just choose to believe this. And this is where, in fact, a good number of you are at because 
I read the emails and I listen to the conversations. That Some of you say, I want to believe, but I can't. And that's where all of these conversations are important. But again, our believing sort of takes us. We don't choose it. And I really have to land the plane here, even though there's more good stuff that are coming down the road. I'll say two things. One is, being the Calvinist that I am, it chooses you. You might say, well, that sounds terribly, that makes me terribly impotent. Is there nothing I can do? No, I didn't say that. I said, it chooses you. Well, what can I do? Well, I would say to embed yourself in a community that has been chosen. Because that choosing does, in fact, get contagious, which everyone will agree. Well, the children of believers tend to believe. See, it's contagious. It's spread from parent to child. Always, not always. Perfectly, not mechanically, but birds of a feather. So if you want to believe, you have to, you have to share life with people who do believe. And eventually you will start believing the belief. That's how it works. That's not rocket science. Can you promise me if I do that, it'll happen? No, because it is in fact a gift. But your odds are much better if that's what you do. So, yeah, I am out of time for right now. We'll have to see if I get into this one some more. It's a very fertile conversation. I hope what I've said has been helpful to you. And leave a comment if it has.